0: I categorically deny the allegations. I was coming back from my cousins, and I saw the person I now know to be Beatrice walking home. She was with her friend, and the friend left in a car. She smiled at me and fell over, dropping her mobile. She told me her name was Beatrice, that she was 18, and her birthday was in September. So begins Mr. Wise's prepared statement. We've heard it before, but it's clearer today, and I understand things I hadn't the first time. There's no way B would have said her name was Beatrice. He's clearly been told her name and used it to try to prove that he knew her as if giving your name to someone is tantamount to agreeing to sex. I don't understand why the prosecution hasn't made more of this, if only as proof that he's a liar. It also doesn't fit with what Detective Sergeant Gallagher has repeatedly told me, that no one knows whether B actually gave him her name, but that he would have heard it in court. DS Gallagher must have known he's used her name in his prepared statement, so he didn't get B's name from court. It's also bewildering and bamboozling, so much fact and counterfact, so many things I can half hear due to the courtroom's dreadful acoustics and my poor hearing. If we at least had the same paperwork as the jury, the jury bundle, perhaps we'd understand better. Right now it seems like a fog of claim and counterclaim that I'm struggling to make head or tail of. I can only hope that the jury is not feeling as confused as I am. The rest of Mr. Y's statement is as I remember it from the prosecution barrister's opening statement. Mr. Y says he and B walked up the hill together, that B initiated kissing, that she pushed Mr. Y, forced his trousers down, etc, etc. I can't bear to hear the rest again, so I block my ears. I refrain from shouting out la la la, but I feel like doing so. I've struggled and struggled to think of the right adjectives to describe Mr. Y's cross-examination. Bizarre, ridiculous, laughable, all spring to mind. I settle on insane. Mr. Y clearly believes that oral sex isn't really sex, and therefore rape isn't really rape if it's oral. He must have been told, by his solicitor, his barrister, or both, that this is not the case in UK law. But, as we will find out later when the jury give their verdict... It is simply impossible for some people to change their deeply held, culturally ingrained beliefs. They just can't do it. Throughout the questioning, Mr. Y does everything he can to wriggle, literally, out of admitting that vaginal sex happened. He claims that his penis only entered by a couple of millimetres for a couple of seconds. Now, the fact of the matter is that the depth and length of time of penetration are utterly irrelevant in the eyes of the law. Again, someone, his solicitor, his barrister... Must have told him that. But again, he seems to be ignoring this fact. He claims that B was guiding his penis into her, that she was the one forcing him to have vaginal sex, that he didn't want to do it because he didn't have a condom, but wasn't able to stop her. Whilst he is saying this, everyone in the courtroom is staring at him, some of us open-mouthed in incredulity. The judge herself doesn't understand. She intervenes. I'm not clear, Mr. Why, she says. Could you not just step away if you didn't want to do this? No, he replies, shaking his head sorrowfully. She was holding me, and forcing me. This is one of the many times when I wish the jury had been able to see B in person. Of course the special measures that allow her cross-examination to be conducted separately so that she does not have to appear in court is far better for the victim, but this means that the jury has only ever seen B sitting down on video. Therefore, they can't possibly truly appreciate how small and slight she is. The problem is compounded by the fact that Mr. Y is not a big man. He's not tall, maybe five foot nine? But nevertheless, he's bigger than B. and when you take into account the shock factor, B's drunkenness, her fear, there's no way she could overpower him, or, for Christ's sake, force him to have sex with her. But this is what Mr. Y is claiming. He wants the jury to believe that a young girl, who apparently has one hand busily occupied somewhere else, is strong enough to hold him still with the other, and prevent him from moving or getting away. It's absurd, but at no point does the prosecution challenge him on this. I don't know why. If it were me prosecuting, I would have done. Fortunately, the judge continues with her questions. "'Did you make a complaint to the police about Miss Canning forcing you to have sex with her?' she asks." No, replies Mr. Y. The judge leaves it at that. I think she's got her point across. Mr. Y goes on to state that B was completely happy after he'd finished with her. He says that he picked up her jacket and gave it to her. It was July. B wasn't wearing a jacket. Another of Mr. Y's lies. A small one, but still a lie when he's under oath. But no one challenges him on this. He says he then went back to the spot to find his airpods. Quick aside here. I love the way these people always have the latest technology. I work full-time and can't afford AirPods. He's an asylum seeker and can. Plus the aforementioned two phones, including one of the latest iPhone models. Mr. Y's ludicrous testimony continues. He says he saw Bea was texting someone and she told him it was her dad. But this information wasn't in his prepared statement, and since then he has been given the transcripts of all AllBeans' phone calls and messages, and will know that B did indeed text Phil at 9.40pm. Do the jury understand this? I'm just not sure. At this point, proceedings are interrupted by a note from one of the jurors, passed to the judge via the clerk. I don't know which juror wrote the note. By the end of the trial, I have my suspicions, but there's no way of ever finding out. The judge reads the note to the court. It asks a question, something along the lines of, If Beatrice was a virgin, why was there no bleeding when they had sex? I'm stunned by this question. It seems irrelevant, intrusive, even more than all the rest of this awful business, and also monumentally misinformed. Everyone knows that the majority of women don't bleed on first having vaginal sex. The belief that they do, and indeed they must, is one of those cultural myths or old wise tales that exist to shame and subjugate women and have no place in modern society. But the reality is that not everyone shares the values and beliefs of a modern society and those people sit on juries, just like all the rest of us. The judge says she will address the question at a later stage, and Mr Wise's cross-examination continues. Mr Wise is completely fixated on the fact that there is a CCTV camera on the nursery school, which he claims would prove the sex was consensual. He repeatedly brings this up, questioning why the police haven't found it, and insinuating he's been stitched up. There is no CCTV camera. He also claims over and again that he phoned his cousin on a video call and his cousin spoke to B and can confirm that she was completely happy. It's all just lie upon lie, so many lies. But surely the jury will question why the cousin hasn't been called to give evidence on Mr. Y's behalf, won't they? We already know from the opening of the trial that the only witness who will appear before the court is the young woman who found B, who has already been cross-examined. There is no one else. Mr. Y carries on along his mendacious path. He maintains that he asked the police officer guarding the scene for directions the day after the rape took place because the bus stop was closed, so he couldn't take the bus and didn't know the way on foot. I am sure that bus stop was not closed at any point during the summer of 2021, but because he's only proffered this information now during the trial, it has not been verified. Megan, the detective constable, puts in a request to the bus company during a break, but doesn't get a reply. The frustration is that we know the area really well, so we know that there is no way Mr Y could be living where he's living and not know where the tube station is located. He must know. It's a few minutes' walk around the corner from his accommodation. And even if the bus wasn't running, he could easily walk the same route. It would only take him ten minutes or so. But none of the police officers, none of the legal personnel, nor the judge, knows the area like we do. And most importantly of all, neither do the members of the jury. In addition, no one makes the obvious point that, despite his protestations that he doesn't know the way, Mr Wise somehow got home on the evening of the rape without returning to the bus stop, as CCTV shows that he is not seen there again that night. Did he take a flying carpet? Or is this more proof that he's lying through his teeth and his entire story is a mixture of make-believe falsehoods and nonsense? By the end of the cross-examination, There seems to be so much missing information, so many loose ends not tied up. The feeling of desperate fear, that these omissions and confusions will lose us the case, never leaves me.